0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 3, 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. Let's continue our study of 1 Samuel. Hannah was barren which is a degrading and humiliating condition for a woman of the ancient Middle East. Her husband Elchanah, a prosperous man, had taken two wives, and the other, Penina, had provided Elkhana with the always needed and prized male heir, as well as some other children, to grow his family. And as one might expect, the two Sarah, S-A-R-A, Sarah, Hebrew for co-wives, were rivals for Elkanah's love and attention. And somewhat surprisingly, we find that it was the barren co-wife, Hannah, whom Elkanah loved more than the other one which goes a long way towards explaining why that fertile supplier of Elkanah's offspring had an especially bitter attitude and quarrelsome relationship with Hannah. Peninah never missed an opportunity to rub it in that Hannah was essentially a freeloader who had not done her womanly duty of bearing children. For the family. For Hebrews, the inability of a woman to conceive a child carried serious religious overtones with it. In other ancient societies, fertility was just as important as it was for the Israelites, but the issue for them was societal, not spiritual. Certainly, having many children was just as important to the pagan husband and his wife, so they would go to Baal and to Ashtoreth, or their counterparts, and whatever God's system was in use by their particular culture, because they were the recognized God and goddess of fertility. The married couple would pray and ask this God tandem for children. And if that didn't happen, then they would sacrifice and they would pray to these gods to to remedy their situation. But unlike for the pagan world that simply beseeched the gods for their help to have a large family, which was just a personal desire, to the Hebrew mind, it was a matter of obedience to Yehovah, and thus it was a spiritual duty that a woman brings new life into the world because it was commanded by God in Genesis. Listen to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals, and over all the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful. Be fruitful multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. Thus, for a Hebrew wife or concubine to be barren, it was essentially viewed as a disobedience to God. And the consequence of all that was pretty public. Yes, it may have been suspected that that woman's body was malfunctioning, And thus it was out of her control, but that didn't make it any less her fault. Generally, such a malfunction was seen as a curse from the Lord, resulting from some commission of sin on the part of that childless female. It was a catch-22 situation. The assumption was that because the woman was disobedient in some area of her life, God reacted by closing up her womb, and the automatic result of that was yet another disobedience by not bringing new life into the world. Every year, when El Cana, Penina, and Chana went up to Shiloh Shiloh, for the family festival, it in some way just amplified Chana's barren condition, and she became terribly depressed. Imagine Chana looked forward to this animal, uh, annual pilgrimage to the tabernacle with absolute dread. So one year, Hannah decided to take rather drastic action. And to present herself before the Lord and ask Him to relieve her from this awful burden. Let's pick up the story at verse 9 of First Samuel uh, chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 298. And we're just going to read from verses 9 through 19. So, Hannah got up after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the Cohen was sitting on his seat by the doorpost of the temple of Adonai. And in deep depression. She prayed to Adonai and cried. And then she took a vow. She said, Adonai, if you will notice how humiliated your servant is, if you will remember me, not forget your servant, but will give your servant a male child, then I will give him to Adonai for as long as he lives, and no razor will ever come on his head. She prayed for a long time before Adonai, and she, as she did so, Eli was watching her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Her lips moved, but her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Stop drinking your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord. I'm a very unhappy woman. I've not drunk either wine or other strong liquor. Rather, I've been pouring out my soul before Adonai. Don't think of your servant as a worthless woman because I have been speaking from the depth of my distress and anger. And then Eli replied, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. And she replied, May your servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went on her way, and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. Well, they got up early in the morning and worshipped before Adonai, and then they returned and came to their house in Ramah. Well, so emotionally debilitated was Hannah that she couldn't bring herself even to eat. But she appropriately waited for the rest of Elkanah's family to finish their banquet that featured the meat of that sacrificial animal. And then she strolled over to the entrance of the tabernacle and she knelt down to confront the Lord in in prayer in an area called the Mezuzah hechal, The Hebrew word Mezuzah is familiar to many of you. By tradition, it's a small rectangular box that's attached to the doorpost of a Hebrew home. In early times, when a dwelling usually only had one door, the outer door, the entrance door, this box was filled with a small handwritten scroll containing scripture taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 11, and it was attached on the doorpost. And in much later times, when homes began to have inner doors that separated rooms, it became a tradition to attach a mezuzah to every doorway in the house. Now, here's the thing the meaning of mezuzah here in Samuel, is not about that device. Such a religious device as that little box that we now call a mezuzah wasn't even invented yet. At the time of Samuel and his mother, Hannah, a mezuzah only referred to the entryway to to a dwelling or a structure. That entryway could have been as simple as a doorway. It could have been maybe even a foyer or a porch. What is equally interesting is that the place Hannah confronted God was called the Mezuzah Hechal, with the key word being Hechal. And this is because Hechal was the common word for temple. Okay, in other words... If we took this phrase in 1 Samuel at face value, it says that there was a temple to God at Shiloh. Meaning that what Solomon built a hundred years later or so was not the first temple. Now even in Hebrew tradition, a temple and a wilderness tabernacle are two entirely different things. A temple is a permanent structure made of wood and stone, perhaps, while a tabernacle is a portable tent. So, was there a permanent structure already built at Shiloh a century before David asked permission to build one for the Lord in Jerusalem? There's a lot of scholarly debate about this, but it seems to me that the answer is not so complex. Especially once one has visited Shiloh and looked closely at the well-defined area where the sanctuary once dwelt. Okay. Here in 1 Samuel is the first use in Holy Scripture of the word Hechal and referring to God's earthly dwelling place. Okay. The Hebrew language you know didn't just spring up out of thin air. It developed primarily from two cousin languages, Ugarit and Akkadian. And remembering what I taught you a couple of lessons ago, that writing using alphabetic characters was developed as a means to memorialize how a word sounded when it was spoken It's not difficult for any of us to imagine that as the world's population that sprang from Noah began to spread out, people who lived in what were now hundreds of relatively isolated pockets of people, they developed minor language variations called dialects in their speaking and in the way that they uh, pronounced their words. You know, we have several English dialects in existence in the modern United States, probably in this room. All one has to do is travel from the deep south north up to New York to hear what seems to be the same language spoken quite differently. Take the name for the well-known city Louisville, for example. In, In the Kentucky area, people say... Lovell or Louisville, all right, in New York they might say Louisville very strongly. I mean, if we used our alphabetic characters to write down what the word Louisville, and I've heard it pronounced Louisville, all right, sounds like in the South versus the North and other places, it would be spelled very differently, even though it's exactly the same word. Okay. Thus, in Ugarit that came before Hebrew, a standard word in their language was Egal. Egal, which meant a large house, and was therefore at times used to mean a temple. But a G was pronounced with a very guttural sound, I can't, I can't make it, I can't get it to come down quite low enough. All right, but so, so it's easy to see that the transition from the Ugarit egal, its way down—the G is just barely there—to the Hebrew echal, particularly when we understand that in Biblical Hebrew the H sound is barely audible, sounds almost alike echal, echal. All right. Thus, in this very early use of the Hebrew word hekal in the first book of Samuel, it's that hekal carried a meaning of a large house or a large structure as opposed to what it eventually came to mean in Hebrew society, temple. Okay, now remember I told you at the beginning of our book that we were going to get a little bit deeper into some of these Hebrew words and phrases. So what we have is Hannah praying at a kind of porch or a foyer, that had been constructed to the entrance to the tabernacle. In fact, when one goes to Shiloh today, you can find ancient post holes bored into the rock that really only makes sense if it was used to hold large posts meant to be fairly permanent. Very probably, there was some amount of more permanent, of a more permanent stone and wood structure that was added to the tent as the tent wore out as the decades and scores of years passed. Right? And as anterooms were built around it to be used for various purposes such as a place for worshippers to gather and for the Levites to eat their sacred meals. Well, as the high priest Eli looked on, Seated in his chair of honor, he saw Hannah's lips moving and her facial expressions changing and her tears flowing, but no sound was coming out of her mouth. And her prayer that included a, a, a vow that she would return this hoped-for son to God as a lifelong Nazarite if he'd just allow her to conceive, this was all made silently. Now, for reasons we're not told, Eli assumed she was drunk. Now, I wonder why he would think that. I think it's very likely because he probably had a deal regularly with worshipers who drank a lot of ritual wine before they came to the sanctuary tent to commune with God. I mean, this was a very dark age we're talking about here of confusion and apostasy for Israel. And I imagine we know precious little about all the depravities and and, and nonsense that substituted for actual spirit-filled worship of that time. But Hannah shot back to Eli. She wasn't drunk. Rather, she was merely a woman with a deeply troubled soul and she was pouring out the longings of her soul to the Father. She says, I've not drunk wine or other strong liquor. And let's pause here and examine this statement for just a minute. In Hebrew, Hannah says she has drunk neither yayin nor shechar. Yayin is the customary Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament for wine. And shakar gets variously translated as strong drink or liquor or intoxicating beverage, something like that. Now here's the point. It's not ever my purpose to demean any Christian denomination or doctrine. But at the same time, I just don't feel right about what about letting what amounts to nonsense stand as truth. Several familiar evangelical denominations say that in the Bible, wine doesn't contain alcohol. And that the wine used for ritual by the priests and drunk by Jesus and his disciples at Passover and the wine that was mystically converted from plain water by Yeshua at the request of His mother at the wedding ceremony at Cana were all merely grape juice. And thus the Bible speaks against drinking alcoholic beverages under any circumstance and makes it a sin. This is just not so. Wine at all times meant a rather modest to low alcohol content drink made from grapes. One could absolutely get drunk from drinking wine and it's the getting drunk that's the issue. Not the modest and appropriate drinking of wine. But also notice here how Eli and Hannah both refer to the wine as what? An intoxicating drink that was the cause of Hanah's seemingly strange actions, even though it wasn't so. So let's we'll kind, of, kind of get by this silliness, all right? that, that, that in the Bible, wine wasn't real wine. All right? Now, in verses 12 and 13, we're introduced to a, a new expression, praying before the Lord. Actually, it's praying before Yehovah. And then this is followed by Hana was speaking in her heart. This is referring to a person praying in a manner of total absorption into God's presence. It's, a, it's, it's worship of spirit to spirit. Hana was utterly oblivious to what was going on around her. Or that even Eli, the high priest, was looking on suspiciously and critically. So deeply connected was she at that moment to her creator. Praying before the Lord in the Bible is very different than praying to the Lord. Praying to indicates a direction. Praying, too, is about God being above and distant. The former indicates intimacy and unity. The latter indicates separateness. Therefore, in verse 16, Hannah asks the high priest to believe her that not only is she not drunk, she has been communing with the Lord in proper worship. So she respectfully asks Eli not to see her as a worthless woman. In Hebrew, she asks Eli not to see her as a bat belial, a daughter of belial. This is another of those ancient Hebrew expressions that we know is a very negative one. Right. But exactly what it meant to convey isn't so clear. Okay. Thus, we're going to get various translations in our Bibles about, from this phrase. Such as, a daughter of worthlessness, a worthless woman, a base woman, something like that. The idea is to describe the character of a person, in this case a woman, as immoral, destructive, harmful, or evil. It's the sort of character that would be destined to have his or her existence completely cease, cease upon their death or be permanently separated from God. And Elia responds by recognizing that he has misjudged her. And so now he not only validates, but also offers blessings upon her request to the Lord. The term, go in peace is just a rather standard Middle Eastern expression of farewell. Now, notice in verse 18 that the act of her pouring herself out to the Lord in complete honesty brought this sense of peace and comfort to her. It's not that she suddenly became certain that now she would conceive. It's that the intimacy with God done in a humble and sincere manner gave her that peace that passes all understanding that so many of God's people receive from time to time when we are in dire straits or when we are in mourning. It's not that our circumstances necessarily change. It's that somehow God has given us an unspoken assurance that he hears. He's with us. He loves us. He's concerned about us. And that whatever happens, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Hana's state of mind was so elevated that her appetite returned. So the next morning, Elkanah's family packs up and return to their home up in Ramah. Now back in Ramah, Hannah became pregnant. It, was, it is said here that the Lord remembered Hannah. Remembering has nothing to do with memory. It has to do in that it is the one who remembers, Yehovah in this case, brought about what he determined he would do in connection with this person. In his time and in his way. Biblically, the idea of God remembering is always in a positive sense. That is, when the Lord remembers someone, it is to bring about blessing, not calamity. Let's reread a little bit more of 1 Samuel. Open your Bibles again. We're going to start reading at verse 19 and go to the end. They got up early in the morning and worshipped before Adonai and then returned and came to their house in Ramah. el had sexual relations with Hanah, his wife, and Adonai remembered her. She conceived, and in due time she gave birth to a son whom she named Shmuel, because I have asked Adonai for him. The husband El-Khanah went up with all of his household to offer the yearly sacrifice to Adonai and fulfill his vow. But Hanah did not go up. Explaining to her husband, not till the child has been weaned. Then I'll bring him so that he can appear before Adonai and live there forever. Her husband Elkanah answered her, Do what seems good to you. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may Adonai bring about what he said. So the woman stayed and behind and nursed the child until she weaned him. And then after weaning him, she took him up with her, along with three young bulls, a bushel of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of Adonai in Shiloh, even though he was just a child. After the bull had been slaughtered, the child was brought to Eli. And she said, My Lord, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am that woman who stood here near you, praying to Adonai. I prayed for this child, and Adonai has granted the request I asked of him therefore I have loaned him to Adonai as long as he lives he is on loan to Adonai and he prostrated himself there before Adonai well the story shifts Hannah's unbearable humiliation is finally lifted By the birth of her son, Samuel. In Hebrew, his name is Shmuel, which means something like the name of God. Now, often Bible students will read verse 20 and assume that the sense of the sentence is that Shmuel must mean asked of God. Because it says she gave Shmuel his name for that reason but that's not probable. Shmuel is derived from two Hebrew words, Shem and El, meaning respectively name and God. Now let's incorporate something of what we've learned now about how to understand the term name, Shem in Hebrew, as used in ancient times. Now, we've discussed a number of times that the term name doesn't mean Jerry or Bob or Karen. Okay? Rather, a better way to think of it as, is as attributes or essence or character. But it can also indicate progeny or offspring. In other words, when we studied letter 8 marriage... The idea was for a childless widow to marry her brother-in-law and then the hope would be she would become pregnant with a son to become the heir for her deceased husband. The heir that she had never produced before her husband died. Sometimes the Bible will say she's to raise up a son in her husband's name. Okay. More accurately, it in English it means to raise up a name, raise up an offspring for her husband. So when we understand that Shmuel means name of God, it embodied two thoughts to Hannah. It meant that God is the father, and that Samuel is his offspring, not literally, but figuratively. God had actively caused Hannah to become pregnant. Just as he had for many years before... ...actively caused Hannah to be barren. Thus, she is but giving God all the glory. And second, it meant that Samuel would bear godly characteristics. And of course, that would be expected... Because he would start to serve in the house of God from a very early age. Now the time rolled around for the yearly festival at Shiloh. But Hannah informed Elkanah that she didn't want to go until Samuel was weaned. Now this again points up to this almost certain reality that this was not some God-ordained pilgrimage festival that was being celebrated annual because it's doubtful Hannah could have refused to go without it being a sin. Thus it was somewhat an optional deal. And thus Hannah wanted not to turn over her young son to the priesthood until he was a little older and weaned. Now among those ancient cultures, weaning generally took place no earlier than three years. Sometimes it was up to five if economic conditions in particular uh, dictated it. Elkanah offered no resistance to Hannah's decision. In fact, he told her it was just fine with him. And then took the needed step of saying only may Adonai bring about what he said. More accurately, what Elkanah said was only may Adonai establish his word. To establish his word is a, was a Hebrew saying, and it means approximately to do his will. So what Elkanah was doing was something very important. He was validating his wife's vow, which is both a duty and a prerogative of a husband. Listen to Numbers 30.13 But if her husband makes them null and void on the day he hears them then whatever she said, vows or binding obligation will not stand. Her husband has voided them and Adonai will forgive her. So Elkanah had every right to annul Hannah's vow to give up Samuel to the priesthood and instead keep his son. But instead he chose to confirm it. Well, some time passed. The weaning occurred. And Hana proceeded to keep her part of the bargain. The family again journeyed up to Shiloh, and this time brought a very generous offering for this special occasion. Now, there's been some disagreement about the animal or animals that were brought for the sacrifice. Some of your versions will say that a three-year-old bull was presented. Others, like our complete Jewish Bible, will say that three young bulls were offered for sacrifice. The difference lies only in one group of translators feeling that three bulls of any age were much too much. So, the words must have been corrupted. Over time, and in their eyes, it should have read one three year old bull. But as usual, we're probably best to keep it as it is, as it literally says, and have three bulls brought to Shiloh. For one thing, that's just the plain reading of it. For another, very likely, there were three different sacrifices involved that day. Okay. It was the law of Moses that before any other kind of sacrifice could even occur, an olah sacrifice had to be presented. and olah required an animal, always an animal, as opposed to produce. And usually, the more economically well-off a worshipper was, the more expensive of an animal was used. Thus when Elkanah's family went on its annual pilgrimage to Shiloh they probably normally brought two animals with them. One for the olah, the other for the zevah shlamim. See, this is because the worshipper was never allowed to eat from the olah, Only the zevah. So when we read of Elkanah's family having their banquet every year up there, the meat that they were eating was the result of the Zeva Shalmim offering, not the olah. However, this time, there was an additional kind of offering, the vow offering, that had to be performed as a completely separate act. See, the law required that at any time that a vow was made with the Lord, a vow offering was needed upon the completion of the terms of the vow. Now recall in the New, how in the New Testament, St. Paul went to Jerusalem to make a vow offering to complete some kind of vow agreement he had made with God. Also remember Jephthah and his ill-fated daughter, Jephthah had made a vow that if he achieved victory over his enemies that he would sacrifice as a vow offering the first thing that came out of his house when he returned from battle. Sadly, it was his daughter that was that first thing. And Jephthah committed the atrocity of sacrificing her. So here we have a situation in Samuel requiring three different sacrifices. So we have three different animals brought from Ramah to Shiloh for the occasion. Further, we are told that they brought along one ephah of flour as is required uh, for the mincha offering that had to accompany all animal sacrifices. And ephah is quite a lot of flour. Way too much for one sacrifice. But the law of Moses ordains different amounts of flour depending on which kind of animal is sacrificed. A bull was always to be accompanied with no less than three-tenths of an ephah of flour. So three bulls would require nine-tenths of an ephah and we have it recorded that one full a fla- uh, flower was brought thus we have a very good match. Okay, It was indeed three bulls and the prescribed amount of flour to go with them that were brought to Shiloh not one three year old bull. Now verse 25 complicates that situation a little bit because it says that after the bull was slaughtered singular Hannah brought Samuel to Ellie turned him over, but again, some academics say this is proof that it was only one three-year-old bull. The, but, but this is really only a problem if you're looking for a problem. Okay, the context of the statement about that sacrificing the bull is not of the family journeying to Shiloh for the festival; rather, it's specific to the process of. Hannah completing her vow offering by, of bringing Samuel to Eli, The final act she had to do before turning Samuel over to Eli was the vow offering. The vow offering was just one of those three bowls. But you know what a bittersweet moment that must have been for Hannah as she led little Shmuel by the hand and turned him over to the high priest. The child wouldn't have been more than five years old probably a, probably a year less than that. He was probably around four. But let's not set aside as we think about this the real reason for Hannah wanting a child in the first place. It was to erase her personal humiliation of never bearing a baby. Raising a child to maturity was never the issue for Hannah. Though there is also no reason to cynically think that Samuel was little more than a means to an end for her. And as she presents Samuel to Elie, She reminds the high priest of that day around five, six years ago that he found her praying at the entrance to the tabernacle. And she explains something about that day that Elie didn't know. The subject of her prayer had been a vow to God for this child. And that if God gave Hannah fertility she would return with the boy and give him back to God, which meant giving him to the priesthood. Well, this chapter ends with what appears to be a strange characterization by Hannah that what she was doing was loaning Samuel to the Lord. What is kind of fascinating is that the Hebrew word that is translated in our Bible and many others as loaning is Shaul. This is the exact same word as the name of the king that Samuel would anoint as the first king of Israel, Saul. The better translation is that Hanah entrusted Samuel to Eli, not loaned. Loaned not only doesn't fit the context is a real stretch to assign the meaning of loan to that particular Hebrew word. Further, if we more po- properly use the word entrust, we have Hana saying, Therefore, I entrust him to Adonai, and as long as he lives, I entrust him to Adonai. In fact, what I just quoted to you is a near-perfect Western Semitic vow protocol for that era. Thus it's pretty hard to find fault with this much better and much more literal rendering. In fact, the use of the word Shaul here, Saul, has caused some consternation because some academics think this may mean that this entire narrative... About the birth and dedication of Samuel was actually originally the birth narrative of Saul. And somehow the two got all mixed up. But if that's the case, we would have had Saul spending his youth ministering at the priesthood at Shiloh. And that not only does that, does that not support the biblical narrative... Neither does any other biblical or extra-biblical record support that idea. So, that's just a bit of fanciful thinking. We're going to just get a short start on chapter 2 before we end today's lesson. So, open your Bibles back up again. We're going to just read a few verses to start out chapter 2 of First Samuel. Then Hannah prayed, and she said, my heart exults in Adonai. My dignity has been restored by Adonai. I can gloat over my enemies because of my joy at your saving me. No one is as holy as Adonai because there's none to compare with you. No rock like our God. Stop your proud boasting. Don't let arrogance come from your mouth. For Adonai is a God of knowledge and he appraises Actions. The bows of the mighty are broken while the feeble are armed with strength. The well-fed hire themselves out for bread while those who are hungry hunger no more. The barren woman has borne seven while the mother of many wastes away. Adonai kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Adonai makes poor and he makes rich. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the trash pile. He gives them a place with leaders. He assigns them seats of honor. For the earth's pillars belong to Adonai. On them he has placed the world. He will guard the steps of his faithful. But the wicked will be silenced in darkness. For it is not by strength that a person prevails... Those who fight Adonai will be shattered. He will thunder against them in heaven. Adonai will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and enhance the power of his anointed. The first ten verses of chapter 2 probably belong as the last ten verses of chapter 1. Right, because they take place at the time of and in conjunction with the dedication of Samuel to God and to the priesthood. In other words, Hannah said the words that in chapter 1, therefore I have entrusted Samuel to Jehovah and as long as he lives I have entrusted him. And then she followed that up with what we just read, which is why I wanted to get it in today. Okay. It didn't happen after some time passed. These ten verses that we just read are so highly regarded as a theological treatise unto itself that it's been given its own title, Hannah's Song or Hannah's Prayer. And while we will study it at length in our next lesson, we need to take it as the framework for all that's going to follow. In the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And, then, and in an even broader sense, all Holy Scripture now that's going to come after this. It is as foundational as the seven Noahide laws. The Shema, the Ten Commandments. It is factual and it's prophetic. It is profound and it is practical. Now I want to end today's lesson with some food for thought. The era of Samuel was an era of wholesale transition from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. And Samuel is God's catalyst for that and his earthly tool to facilitate that transition. But what I want you to be acutely aware of as we go forward is that in no way did this transition involve a negation or a change or abolishment or addition to any previous covenant or promise God had made with Israel. Many modern Christians rightly declare that Samuel set the the pattern for John the Baptist. And that both Samuel and Yochanan would be given the awesome and humbling privilege of ushering the kingdom of God into the next stage of a whole series of stages that will eventually end in the final redemption of mankind. And that privilege, including included for both of them anointing a king. Unfortunately, the two great systematic theologies that emerged from the European Enlightenment about three centuries ago and today form the basis for what is commonly called mainstream Christianity say that in many ways Yeshua broke away from some of the previous patterns and greatly changed or even abolished all the previous covenants and he set up an entirely new dynamic. One of the systematic theologies called dispensationalism generally says that we can break Bible history down into eras or administrations where God changed how he governed and along with it, he necessarily changed some of the rules and laws of his governance. Now, I don't want to paint all denominations that, hit, that adhere to this systematic theology with the same broad brush, because there's a very wide variance as to just how, the various, how, they, how they view dispensationalism in the various dispensations. Some, at one end of the spectrum, take it as far as absolute replacement theology. And some at the other end of the spectrum rightly deny and denounce replacement theology and see Israel and the church as having a great deal of overlap. But generally, there is a belief that with every change of type of human governance, every dispensation, from Moses, let's say, to the judges, to the kings, is just one example, that there were significant changes in God's justice system and even some alteration of his principles. And that with Christ, a whole new, never-before-existing justice system and religion was created just for Gentiles. While mostly leaving intact the old justice system, but only for the Jews. I fervently deny that the Bible, Old or New Testaments, ever envisions bringing about such a thing. Okay. At no time has the Lord God ever abrogated, destroyed, abolished, or otherwise made substantial changes to any covenant he's ever made. God did not replace Israel with the church nor did he create two separate justice systems, one for Jews and the other for Gentiles. And it didn't matter that the form and structure of human government changed over time as it continues to change. God's laws and principles and covenants remain intact and in force. Okay if it was the type of human government that dictated which of God's laws and commands remain and which are jettisoned, then it ought to be that in our modern time, under communism, there's one set of God's laws. Under democracy, there's another set. Under a monarchy, there's another set. And under the tribal systems that still govern much of the world's population, there's yet a whole other group of divine commands at work. And further, that the Jews have a whole other system of God's justice to operate under that's different and separate from all those I've just mentioned. I mean, such a thing is not only unscriptural, it's irrational. It's illogical on its face. The notion that this is how God operates is really nothing but man-made religious philosophy and tradition made to serve an agenda. Samuel ushered in a new type of human government for Israel, not a new religion operating under a different and revised set of laws and principles. Neither did Yeshua. Okay, we'll continue First Samuel chapter 2 next time.